Let's make sure history never forgets the name. Sci-fi melody. Got out. Good afternoon, agents. In 1996, Tom Cruise restarted the franchise Mission Impossible with the first film installment. Despite a low rating on Rotten Tomatoes, we believe it deserves another look. We realize that you have reviewed some terrible content in the past, the greatest of which was the film Progeny, and therefore would make you more amenable to more high production value projects. Your review, should you choose to accept it, is to watch the first installment of the Mission Impossible films and review it on Sci-Fi Malady. Good luck, gentlemen. This message will self-destruct in five seconds. Oh, what? Sci-Fi Malady, Symptom 211. Mission Impossible, the first one. Welcome back, sickies, to uh, continuing with Spy-Fi September, and we are doing the 1996 film Mission Impossible, starring Tom Cruise and briefly Emilio Estevez, which I did not know because I'll be honest, the first time I watched this film, or rather, I was 16 when it came out, and when I saw the previews on TV, the trailers, all I could think of was, eh. I saw this scene in particular at the end where the helicopter blows up and Tom Cruise gets blown against the train. And I thought that looked a little tacky and dumb and I wasn't interested. And to be honest, uh, I kind of regret that now. I, I had fun with this movie. This was, for me anyhow, it wasn't the greatest thing I ever saw, but it's something that I know I would have enjoyed had I given it a chance. So I'm glad we, I'm glad this came up on our list of, uh, spy-fi films. And, and if you're wondering, Mission Impossible, that's set in Earth. Why is that science fiction? Because a lot of the gadgets, a lot of, for the same reason that James Bond made it, a lot of the gadgets and things that there are, plus Thomas can attest to this one, computer hacking. I oh, mean, boy. I mean, I always, Sickies always go on YouTube or whatever and look up videos about like how Hollywood views hacking versus reality. And you'll find out the fiction part because my favorite is not to get off the beaten path too much, but one of them is it shows a guy with sunglasses on and there's neon lights on the computer with this techno music while he's typing, typing, typing. Like you hear what Scott or Thomas is doing right now. He's hacking us out of the mainframe. How is he doing this? I want him found! Hey boss, we're in. Find him and kill him! And then, and, that, and that's the, the film. And then it goes to reality with the guy punching in code, pressing enter, an error message pops up and he just goes, what the, all right. He copies it and pastes it in Google to see what the error message means. And then it goes back to him trial and erroring for the next two days. Pretty much. Which is pretty much how hacking is or programming. For until that he matter. finds the one until he finds the one person at the at the uh target company or, or institution whose password whose username is tagged to password one. Exactly. He's in dumb enough to do with that. Full administrator but, access. Right. <laughs> that or like I said, it's just a lot of trial and error and error code. What? Oh. See, I thought this movie was science fiction because the male lead is a member of a um, 
Religion, founded by a science fiction writer that believes in something that's so wacky that most uh, science fiction. Oh wait, God, I'm sorry. FBI, open up! <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I under. Listen, this movie is a ten out of ten, and I yeah. think everyone should go check yeah. out um the Church of Scientology. <laughs> now listen, yeah, we got. Uh, is that okay? Yes, okay. Based on my new overlords from the Church of Scientology. Yeah. Rock, yeah. edit this all out. <laughs> Hello, sickies. It's Ruck. I know that Scott said to take out this segment, but guess what? I'm not. Because Scott said it best when he said this. And I yeah. think everyone should go check yeah. out um, the Church of Scientology. And if you are a religion and you want a clip of Scott saying this about your religion, that'll only cost $29.99 into my bank account. That's right, $29.99. Here's the card that you can forward it to. The number on the card is... <laughs> or don't. <laughs> At any rate, so, um... Well, but before we get into... I think there's going to be a lot of good conversation about this. Plus, I've got my own little note I want to make based on something I saw yesterday. But before we get into that, let's do some fun facts, shall we? And while I'm digging those up right now or trying to remind myself what they were uh you guys got any initial thoughts you want to throw in there uh about the movie as a whole yeah uh, i actually enjoyed it Oops. i thought it had an ocean's 11 type of vibe to it um mm -hmm. right and uh, as crazy as this is gonna sound the stuff that they got away with was i'm not gonna say believable but it it wasn't fast and furious unbelievable so I kind of, I, I thought it was well planned out, and uh, I'm thinking specifically of how they got into the secure vault with, um, with Ethan Hunt, and and they were able to distract the guy who was supposed to be in there by giving him the stuff that would make him vomit, and lowering him into the vents. I thought it was all pretty good. I, I thought that it was a, yeah. a realistic. We just watched James Bond last week, and when I watched this, I kept thinking, this is what I expected James Bond to be like. And I guess that could be my, maybe my, my summation of what I was thinking as I watched this. This is what I thought James Bond would be like. Well, that's what James Bond is like. We just happened to pick the one that was um, most ridiculous. So, whoopsie. The Joker? <laughs> Homer, you're supposed to take these out. I never lose. Well, at least tell me your diabolical evil plan before you kill me. Oh, not this time, Mr. Bond. Rules or for five-card poker. <laughs> oh, sorry. Or uh, the one where they actually catch Homer catches Bond. Nice work, Homer. When you get home tonight, there's <laughs> going to be another floor on your house. <laughs> so, anyway. So, some fun facts. First, it was Tom Cruise's idea to turn the show into a movie. This was originally a show that aired from 1966 to 73. And then I uh, had a couple of seasons in the 1980s, which I remember watching with my dad, in fact. And then, so Cruz, who was a big fan, decided to make a film out of it. Uh, make, uh, I don't know if they wanted a film franchise, but they went that way. And uh, obviously, with his notoriety, he was able to make that happen. The TV actors, now, interesting that he's taking it from the uh, show, but the TV actors didn't like the film for some reason. I couldn't figure out why, but I just, they didn't like it. And maybe one reason why, though, just speculating here, is the TV director, Brian, De, uh, not Brian De Palma, he was the director of this, but 
uh, Reza Badiyi? Reza? <laughs> Reza, the original director of most of the 1960s and 70s Mission Impossible, he was on set and was kindly asked to leave. Okay. The director, De Palma, told him that he wasn't trying to make it like the show. So maybe that's why. Maybe the actors wanted it to be like the show, and they didn't get that. So, you know, I guess. Apple paid $15 million to have their personal computers in the first movie. Not too much of a surprise there. Uh, let's see. Some other good ones that I found was that if you notice something I didn't notice, and now when I mention it, you guys are going to see it. The first Mission Impossible, the one we watched, doesn't feature any shootouts or gunfights. There is gun usage at the beginning, but it wasn't a battle. It was just a guy shooting a gun to make it look like he was shot, as we find out. Did you guys pick up on that? No gunfights in the whole movie. I did not pick up on that. Huh. Exactly. When I saw that, I was like, huh. Yeah. That's true. Also, a Emilio Estevez was cast in the role of Jack Harmon to shock the audience when he died early on. So oh, I didn't I see that coming. Was, so like it, it worked. Uh, yeah, I mean, but I didn't even. Well, and the funny part is it worked because I didn't even know he was in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I didn't re- recognize that as Emilio Estevez until his name popped up on the screen. And I'm like, oh, oh. Yeah, I picked up on it right away. I just never knew he even made an appearance because the marketing never pushed him. And why would they? Because he's in there for, what, five minutes? Quack, 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 Mr. Ducksworth. Stop this elevator before I die, Mr. Ducksworth. Didn't realize they had Coach Bombay in this movie. (laughs) Warden Bombay, Coach Bombay. Yes, you didn't Uh, triple deke that elevator roof out, did you? Now... There is a, this is more about part two, but it has to do with part one. In Mission Impossible 2, the uh, Luther Stickle, the, what, the actor, uh, what's his character's name? The other hacker they hired. But he, uh, when they explained Operation Chimera to him, he said, oh, it's that simple, huh? So the, basically making fun of the fact that uh, all the missions and subsequent films were not as complex as part one. The the so, actor that you're looking for is Ving Rhames. That would be Ving Rhames. Ah, thank you. Thank Google. Ah. <laughs> so, and one of the things that's interesting is that a lot of these films, in a lot of these films, that Tom Cruise does a lot of the ta- uh, action scenes himself. Now, this one didn't have so many. I mean, the scene where he was in the train, for example, at the end, they actually paid, they had dinner with the head of the train company to convince them to let them shoot on the train. And then the actual scenes where they were on top of it, that was CGI, but they were in a wind tunnel doing those scenes. So the wind was real. Oh, oh, let me rephrase. I did say that most of this seems believable, not to the Fast and Furious disbelief breaking. The train scene does not count. Nothing in the train scene is believable. What? The Fast and the Furious said that's all over the top. But, 
Aside but from that. The wind, the wind was real. So they really were fighting against wind. So there's that. Um, Guy's an I, amazing I helicopter pilot. <laughs> I, I concur completely. I would but, say if I'm putting that up against Han successfully navigating an asteroid field, I think flying that helicopter as long as he did through a dark train tunnel, just big enough for a train, without blowing up the helicopter like he did, is tougher to do than Han flying through that asteroid field. Yeah. To put that in perspective. But, yeah. So with all that in mind, I think that's enough of the fun facts that we need to, to talk about. Uh, I'm going to try to just get into the plots. And this time I'm stuck. Since the last two symptoms, I've done my one minute. I want to try to do it this time again, which will be harder because this plot was more involved. But I'm going to go for it, guys. Yeah, just realize I'm if you go over one minute, your computer is set to self-destruct. Don't ask me how. It just is. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, so it starts with a guy named Jim Phelps, who's the leader of an Imp Impossible Missions Force team, IMF team, who's supposed to go to Prague to get a uh, guy named Alexander Golitsyn, who's stealing a CIA non-official cover list with all agents. And it turns out that they were the team was uh, backstabbed, and only uh, Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise's character, survives. And throughout the movie, he comes to find out that uh, the CIA thinks he is a mole, a deep cover mole, based on the fact that his parents have gotten a large amount of money recently. So he spends the whole movie trying to clear his name by going into CIA, breaking into Langley, getting that knock list, and then selling it to a guy named Max, or someone he named, a guy, a person named Max, who's doing a, something called Job 314, who's trying to, who paid for the whole job to begin with. And using that plot, he's going to try to get the CIA to go get Max so he could clear his name. But then Jim Phelps shows up because he was the one who orchestrated the whole thing from the get-go. And it ends with Jim biting the dust and Ethan being cleared, and he's back in uh, the Mission Impossible Missions Task Force. Mark, I'm going to need you to roll a save versus fire and concussion and confusion. I'm going to need you to roll all three. Really? I'm, I didn't do it? Really close, but your computer blew up about the time you started talking about Jim Phelps. Ah, crap. Ah, well, I got close. Anyway, it's, it's basically that. It's a lot more complex and complicated than that. But the, the bottom line is Ethan Hunt is on a, a Mission Impossible team, and he's supposed to be catching someone who has a list of agents from the CIA. And someone the mission goes balls up. The whole team gets killed except him and one other person. And he comes to find out that it's because Jack Phelps, his original team leader, was uh, running the whole thing to get money by selling the knocklist to Max, and he disrupts it by stealing by stealing a list and getting the CIA to show up and arrest Jim. It's it's complex and complicated, but not so much so that you can't follow it in the end. It's not impossible. 
Right. The mission is, but not the plot. So, <laughs> Huns. So, yeah. So let's get into our, our usual rips and picks because, I, and I, I want to get started because this one was a little uh, personal. So the film starts off in Prague. And I am pleased to say that all of the film scenes were, in fact, in Prague. It wasn't like they showed a city street and then it was a, some building in Budapest. No, everything, even the interior, except for maybe the apartment, that the safe house that uh, Ethan went into, everything was in Prague. Uh, Max's first uh, apartment is the, uh, the Art Deco Museum at Namiesti Republiki. And what's funny is, too, when they pick up Ethan to take him to Max, that pickup point is across the street. I know exactly where it is because it's across the street from uh, Chudok, which is a travel agency. And it is by car probably one to two minutes to that apartment. So unless they took some long driving around in circles route, I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, you could walk there in five minutes from where they picked them up that bus stop to the, but the funny part is too, where they picked him up, they give the address in the movie. Um, and, uh, and I forget the other street, but they are real though. And those were the streets. That was the actual address. So everything in Prague was accurate except for possibly the apartment too. The American embassy is not, nor was it ever on the river. It's actually on a street. It's in that part of town, but it's on a street. It shares a street with the Irish and German embassies going up a hill. So I, I guess they just had to pick something cute. And the embassy of course does not look like that inside that the, with the staircases and all. No, it's a lot more boring than that. Plus, when you walk in, there's the Marine Guards behind bulletproof glass, that sort of thing. Well, again, it doesn't—this is a movie. We have to accept a lot of the— Right, right. But otherwise—but that scene where it's supposedly the U.S. Embassy, at least that stuff was in Prague. Uh, the only thing they got wrong about Prague was at the scene where Jim Phelps is running across the, a bridge. That's the famous Charles Bridge. It is never that empty. Okay, even at let's just say it was 1 a.m., it's never that empty. All right, at 1 a.m., you can walk across easily enough. There's not as many people, of course, but there's people. So, uh, but I get they had to do that. Whatever. So that's my first pick. That not only is all of the are all the places locations in Prague accurate really prog but they even nailed the addresses correctly okay and i guess i had the only pick uh no no, no no i would go with the pacing of the movie and a lot of times we criticize pacing but i think this is a movie where the pacing was done absolutely correct it starts out very fast and it slows down when it needs to for you to catch your breath but this movie never slows down to the point that you get bored 
and you find things out as Ethan Hunt find th- finds things out. You're not seeing things before they happen. Um, it, you really are following the perspective of Ethan Hunt. So all the twists you learn as he learns them. Like when he he's not sure if um can't remember her name right now. Uh, he's not sure if if Jim's wife is in on it or not. So he sets up the test in the train to determine oh, yeah, if she was in on it or not. But you see him, his thought process, go through and say, no, how do you, how do you get her? And then he shows his, his head having the accomplice do it one time and then having him crawl out of the river and do it. Um, I like that. I like the pacing, and I like the fact that this follows Ethan Hunt's perspective almost the entire time. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting about pacing. I'm not going to start it, but that's going to dovetail and my point later that uh, it's nice that you can make films longer now, but that also leads to the problem of dragging stuff out, filler, 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 that creates pacing issues because you have 20 more minutes you have to fill. What are you going to do? I mean, we want to have a film as long as you need. We look at Endgame for example. But the thing about Endgame is, we all said the same thing. You didn't leave that theater feeling like you had just been in there for three hours. You didn't feel it. Because you were engaged, the pacing was good, but not a lot of films can nor should do that. That should be the exception. Uh, that should be one of the few cases exceptions, because when you try to just make a film longer, longer, just because, because you can, you create an unnecessary amount of filler. And, uh, you know, this was made back when theaters wanted you to have um, a lo- uh, about 90 minutes to two hour runtime so that they could get more people cycling through. Um but now, especially now in COVID or COVID times, just to get butts in seats between COVID and streaming and everything else, just to get butts in seats, they want people to show up and stay. Very few films pull off a three-hour mark. Uh, I would say Casino is a very, very good film, and it's two Doesn't hours. And like- 50, it's two hours and fifty-eight minutes, and even it. As good a film as that is, with the acting talent that is in there, with with De Niro and Pesci and Sharon Stone, that movie still, to me, does drag at points and feels like it might be a touch too long. It's hard to watch in one sitting. And that's a great movie. Three hours is tough to pull off. Right, and that's, and that's the point. But see, Casino is good enough that even moments, you get back in with another scene. So it's not a total loss. Whereas, um, I, I don't know, I can't think of a film offhand where, well, you know, the, when I talk later, where you just get bored and you lose interest and it's just going too long. And this, did, this film did not do that. This film did not do that. No, you were engaged the whole time. I you would kinda say. had to be, actually. Oh. Uh, 120 minutes is a pretty good runtime for a film. If you get to 90 minutes, you're probably cutting stuff out that should be in the film. Very rarely do you get up over two hours where you start getting something where you think you, you got the right amount of, you, you, you didn't pad it out. Star Trek to slow motion picture. 
that's one that fails because it goes way too two hours and eight minutes or something on well, the contrary you can pull it off rarely goodfellas two hours 22 minutes works perfectly at two hours and 22 minutes that was but, a good movie but most of your movies that get much over two hours you're getting into a danger zone 120 minutes is a pretty good run time to be shooting for and and i would like to see us go back to that or at least you know that 120 to two hour point because as i said you know you start padding these movies out uh and plus the other reason is you turn a lot of directors into self-indulgent wieners when you look at the snyder cut it is over three hours long and you find out that most of those scenes are complete and utter trash they're just the heroes slowly walking up the stairs five minutes of them walking upstairs you mean to tell me that i needed to see that and that tells me that the director was just a self-indulgent wiener that felt like everything they made is pure gold because as a director you should be able to look at a scene and go gee why did i film that that's not helping anything and in writing zodiac task force right now there are parts where I write and then delete half a page, realizing that's not helping anything. That's not moving things along. What was I thinking? I've always tried to remember something when creating. Um, you, can, you can argue with me on this, but you can, they, if I said that he's one of the greatest authors, American authors, but Ernest Hemingway, by all accounts, is a very good, talented author. And I remember that his reading and learning that his writing style was to write his first draft and then go back through and continue taking things out until he could go through and find not one extra word that he felt wasn't needed in his story. He'd also write multiple endings, too. Yeah. But that I, I've never had that. I've always had that kind of implanted in my head for creative work that and this is crazy because i'm a very verbose babbling person but hemingway always had that philosophy of pare it down to just what's essential and this film does that there isn't any filler or everything that happens is relevant to move the story along so yeah that's a good pick that's a good pick what else we got thomas well i think the style of this is done well because it, it, it's an action film but it's also a suspense type thing sure sure and you honestly don't see that done too well most of the time in my opinion at least like most of the time it's like oh it's eh. you know like it's like i i think this was how do you put it i let me think this through it, it runs that line, I guess, that if you do too much one way or the other, it can get lose the uh, desirability here. Okay. Because this, this, it's like, if it was a suspense film 100%, then it wouldn't be the same movie. This right. has a bunch of action scenes that even then don't go over the top. I mean, even the one when he's breaking into the vault. It's an action suspense scene. Oh, that that's iconic, that scene. It's been copied by a lot of other films. Yeah. And that's a that's kind of a hallmark 
of good writing or production or something like that, when everyone is paying you that homage, that's a good sign. Exactly. Which is why I can't believe that um, it's it's why I can't believe that this got a low rating because it's like, but it's had an influence. Influence means you did something really well. Normally, yeah. yeah right, right. Well, it surprises me that it got a low rating because audiences tend to love um, mindless action movies. But maybe it's just too much going on to follow the plot in this and it needs to be simplified a little more. But um, it does surprise me that this film got a low rating because it, right. it checks all the formulaic boxes to go over very well with American cinema audiences. Right. Well, and you know, I guess that would explain why subsequent installments were not as uh, intense. Maybe because they took a position and said, oh, well, it looks like everybody didn't like the complexity, so we can water it down a bit. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. All right, I got to rip. Okay. You come up with, I really hope that if the United States government has some kind of, like, secret vault like that, that is off the grid with no modem connection, that um, the security system makes a hell of a lot more sense. So, yeah, <laughs> the, the laser yeah. grid at the top of the uh, air duct, fantastic. If the temperature setting goes up too much when the room is unoccupied, fantastic. The floor being super sensitive to weight, fantastic. It doesn't need to be so sensitive that a drop of condensation will set off the alarm. Because that alarm is going to be going off all the time. I was about to say, that one was... I, I liked the concept, but it's like, that's a bit sensitive of a floor plate, really? There, right. There's an air conditioning duct above you. There's going to be some condensation that falls occasionally. The guy left his, his uh, drink there, and the condensation off the sweat fell and set it off. You're going to be running in there all the time, and when the alarm does go off for real, guard's going to be like, Oh, man. A uh, friggin' fly fell this out of the again? air, landed on the Pretty floor. Much. An ant dropped out of the air duct. Um, but in the other thing, the, the laser... Uh, field at the top of the air duct seems pointless since they interdicted it with something anyway and it didn't set the alarm off that to me seems pointless um your decibel meter is set way too low to begin with if it's gonna let you whisper then then it's already letting you communicate anyway but if it is set so low that a rat running through the air duct can get the can get you to toast and set off the alarm once again it's too complicated. It, it's too sensitive. But this whole thing is, uh, is too complicated. Just put a closed-circuit TV camera at the top of the ceiling. Why would there yeah. not be a camera in there? Let's go with this overly complicated, stupid plan. You know what the best plan is? Let's have a friggin' tiger in a cage in the corner of it that we don't feed, and when we leave the room, the tiger cage opens. And before we come back in the room, we lure it back into the cage with some food. That'll keep people out. But no, yep. just put a closed-circuit TV camera up there. I mean, literally the only thing you're missing there is a moat that you have to cross that's full of piranha or something for it to be <laughs> an overcomplicated, ridiculous security system. Throw in the tiger and the moat of piranha when the guy leaves. I mean, just put a camera in there. Hey, look, there's someone in there. Is that guy supposed to be in there? Probably not since he's rappelling down from the uh, air conditioning duct. <laughs> Let's send some people in. Oh, never mind. Okay. 
no, we'll just use this complicated thing. Everything's got to be okay. The alarm hasn't gone off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and the other thing, too, is the sound. So the sound is, I hope, geared towards the air conditioning unit turning on. Right. Or the coolant or the fan on the computer turning on, right? Because yeah. uh, that's going to happen. Yeah, talk about your amazing or, quiet climate control, too, because if the temperature rises one degree, the alarm's going off. But well, if the I, noise I gets thinking, too loud from the air conditioner turning on, the alarm's going off. If I the computer puts up that. too much heat because the fan can't turn on, basically this alarm is going off 24-7 all the time. I was just thinking that with the, just a typical HVAC unit, and Thomas can say this too, when it goes on, especially in a big unit, you hear the boom and it like shakes the whole ventilation system. Well, uh, I'm trying to think. How it's got to machine learning to recognize the sound of the HVAC unit going on and not trigger the alarm. Yeah, it, if you were far enough away, maybe, and if you had correct dampening vibration systems, but even then, it's, yeah. this is an overcomplicated but stupid security system designed only for movies, which makes me think what? quite possibly the United States government might actually employ something like this. Unfortunately, yes. The real security yeah. system well, probably is massively overcomplicated and equally as stupid. <laughs> or not. No, or it's it probably honestly just connected to the World Wide Web and there's some administrator running around with the term Password 1 or COVID 2022. Well, I'm not going to. You, you joke that, about that, but for a while, though. It, uh, Denmark. In, not Denmark, in, sorry. Uh, the Netherlands had a bunch of their. Dykes actually connected to the internet without passwords. Uh, and you could was, control all of it. When was that? Only a few years ago. Oh, geez. Because, like, in 1996, I could definitely see that happening. Yeah, not, no, not that long ago. But, but not that long ago? Um, wow, you guys really assume no one would want to mess with that. Yeah. Which is dumb because it's like, nope, 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 nope. One person, at least just for kicks, is going to want to mess with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but despite the difficulties, you do admit it's a good scene. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. And what's really nice about it is you only think about that at length afterwards. You might pick up on things like, oh, come on. You know what? Whatever. I'm going to suspend disbelief to enjoy the scene. And that's good. That's a good thing when, you know, we're ripping on the little bits of it right now, but it didn't destroy the movie for us, and it didn't take us out of the moment. It was more like, a, you know, as I reflect on it. So Agreed. Agreed. It didn't do anything. The train scene. I'll rip the train scene. I do want to say one thing about that. There was a fun fact about that I forgot to mention. So Tom Cruise came up with how to make that work, especially a troubleshooting part. Uh, Because when he kept getting lowered to the floor, remember where he, like, got dropped and almost hit the floor? He kept hitting his head. (laughs) He He needed counterweight. So he put a buttload of coins in his shoes to counterbalance himself. That's which reminds me of, 
Which reminds me of a joke that Jim played on Dwight by slowly putting nickels in his phone receiver until Dwight yeah. got used to the weight and then just took them all out so he'd pick up the phone too, too quickly and hit himself in the head. That's probably the most inventive Jim on Dwight prank. That one was it fantastic. Was, I, I like that one. It's, he was like, oh, that one took a while. See, I had to do that over a course of weeks. The train scene. The train scene is a rip. Yeah. The train scene oh. is. Oh. This was. This was a look. The train scene was stretching disbelief when they're when they're hanging on to a bullet train, and and you know the one old guy Jim uh, at least has the the um ultimate push up plunger things to pull himself along the top of the bullet train. Tom Cruise just holding on by his fingertips and like backflipping forward at times and riding the wind like wash and a, a leaf on the on the wind. Um I mean I, I, the only way I can explain this is that Ethan Hunt is a Jedi. Because aside from that, with force augmented strength, it's not happening. You know how much strength you've got to have to hold on by your fingertips on top of a bullet train going like 160 miles an hour? It's not happening. You're not uh, letting oh. go and catching yourself either. It's not happening. Then, okay, this is all all right. I thought it was pretty awesome to make the switch and, and hook the helicopter to the train. But yeah. Jim then comes back and unhooks the helicopter from the train and is able to hold on to it to hook himself onto it? No, that's a helicopter trying to pull back from the train. It's going to pull him too. I don't think he's going to be holding his ground on a bullet train and pull that helicopter forward to clip it onto the train at maximum tautness. No, no, no. Wasn't happening. But then we get to the, to the complete idiocy is that all of a sudden he decides that he can drop that helicopter into the train with the propeller wingspan going um horizontally and the back propeller going vertically and hold that helicopter steady enough staying pace with a bullet train inside a tunnel that's barely wide enough for the train and ethan hunt and um old dude yes yeah that was and you know that was seeing parts of that scene is what made me not want to see this movie that's a so, terrible scene, and few things in the Fast and Furious have approached that level of insipid stupidity. I guess, uh, I, I don't know if this is a rip or a pick. Okay, it's definitely not a pick, but I don't know if it's a rip. Um, just watching how the computers work, knowing what I know now is like, that's kind of lame. Actually, okay, here's a rip, because it looked just way too contrived. So he's trying to figure out who Max would be. So he's going through the CIA database. Okay, who could be Max? And nothing's working. And he's like, okay, job 314. Okay, nothing. And he just looks up and happens to see a Bible. And it immediately is like, Job. Job 314. And that's it. It, it's just, I understand coincidences happen, but that one's too much of a stretch for me. That <laughs> that you're just like, man, what is job 1314 or whatever it was, 314? What could that mean? Like, why would they title it that way? And you just look at a Bible and you're like, oh, 
Oh, Job, duh, it's Job 13, 14. Oh, duh. And then he writes the verse in there, and it just works. It's like, I'm sorry, that's way too convenient. I understand you were in a position of how do I do this, but you could have come up with better. Also, how about the fact that the that the leader of the Impossible Mission Force is stupid enough to bring back the Bible from the Drake Hotel? Yes. After saying that's where he went. Those yeah. Gideons, yeah. they stamped it, didn't they? Oh, uh, that was... Oof. And they do stamp Bible, that's right. But that's, again, like you said, Scott, knowing that you're... I mean, uh, and, and plus... Why is the Bible there? Because unless you establish that this guy's a Christian or something, and A, if he's a Christian, why doesn't he have his own Bible he's lugging around? And B, why would you lug a Bible from a hotel in Chicago? Right. All around. Those are also really, yeah. Way too convenient things that, oh, we need a way for Jim to pick up on the fact that this is, Phelps, and hey, I don't know how to do it, so uh, oh, let's just add this little link. Has anyone help. ever taken the Gideon Bible from the hotel nightstand drawer home with them? Well, I mean, I'm sure somebody has, but I can't someone imagine it's a common to. occurrence. I mean, I mean, that's what the that's what the Gideons would like you to do, but I'm sure it's not a common occurrence. Uh, oh, and then those safe houses, man. That is amazing that um, they've got those safe houses set up all over the place with multiple identities, and his handlers at the CIA in Langley don't know to check those safe houses themselves. That's, you know, that's another... I'm glad... I didn't think of that, but you're absolutely right. Why wouldn't they go to the safe houses they know exist? Right, and then if you really were this ultra-secret ghost agent... The CIA is tracking whoever Job 314 is. They're also tracking Max. You would not email them. They're going to check any email coming in, especially that one, and track it back to your safe house, so you're screwed. Right. You know, it's funny that you say that, because I'm remembering the film Ronin, another good movie with Jean Reno. But in that movie, uh, there's a comment. Robert De Niro's playing a CIA agent. And they're tracking a guy who's ex-KGB. And Jean Renault says, well, why don't we go, would he go to an old safe house? No, those are all, those covers are all blown. Well, what if he goes to, why don't we go to this safe house? No, that cover's blown too. Or it's just, uh, so why didn't they think of that here? There's a lot of things they didn't think you. No, you want to, I mean, he would be going off the grid entirely. He wouldn't be touching a computer. He certainly wouldn't be calling Langley from a payphone in London to let him know where he's at. Well, that was deliberate. He wanted them to find him because remember, he clicked off like right before. Yeah, which is also, that is also stupid because tracking doesn't work like that. Tracking is not like. Oh, you need 30, minutes, 30 seconds to get him. No. No, 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 no. No, but more no. like we've logged the call. Give us a few hours and we'll trace it back to the phone that it came from. Well, right. not just that, but we can listen to the background noise. We can mm-hmm. track it. There is a million things that they do on top of that. And it's like, oh, yeah, and 
for another thing. Good luck for it to actually be just that. Yeah. But and the, the funny part that I always love is the oh well we need precisely this amount of time, do you though? I mean, wouldn't that vary depending on network? You're in London, a well-established landline network. This isn't like you're in the middle of uh Gujarat with weak signals and God knows what. You're in London. A modern, well-developed city. It probably doesn't take as long. Or maybe I'm wrong, but maybe it... Uh, yeah, it just didn't really work for me. I mean, it adds to the, the, the tension. It adds to the oh no and cool factor, but otherwise... You don't talk about hiding in plain sight. These guys got their operative who delivers missions posing as a flight attendant offering videos to people to watch movies, in-flight movies. Um, and that's a big hiding in plain sight risk. What if she gives I the know. video to the wrong guy? I mean, I guess it does self-destruct, but still. Like, it's semi-obvious. It's way out in the open. If anyone's tailing this guy, they're going to pick her up, too. Oh, yeah. It, well, this is the whole thing with Mission Impossibles. It makes no sense. Your secret agency group or whatever that does everything is not exactly secret and never are because every time they do one of these it's like oh that is so obvious well yeah your, your secret agent group here for one blows up a cafeteria yeah I, a, a whole cafe or whatever yeah that's going to be noticed you know, there's an entire helicopter crash. That's going to be noted. It's nothing of this is like gets swept under the rug. If there were teams like this, um, Phelps would know his team. And his team probably wouldn't know him. And they definitely wouldn't know who he reported to. And the guy back at Langley wouldn't, uh, Kirshner, Kishner, whatever, um, he wouldn't know. He wouldn't know Phelps' team at all. He might know Phelps, he, but he probably wouldn't even know Phelps. Just to no, keep all the anonymity going on this. Well, for one, this is all black book under the radar stuff. This isn't... Right, so the director of Langley the, probably wouldn't have a record of it somewhere. Correct. This is all off the record. Langley doesn't have any record of this. So he, when he goes rogue, Langley doesn't even know he went rogue. They because they don't know he exists. Yeah, they might suddenly just get a pop-up of some guy on the, the radar. Not that he's in one of their guys. Yeah. He'd be a target. That's it. That's the only way that makes sense that these safe houses aren't known to the CIA. But it's just a problem because they shouldn't know who Ethan Hunt is. Yeah. And they probably shouldn't even know who Phelps is. No. This organization, again, makes no sense because you go... Oh, a part of the F, uh, part of the CIA, but totally separate and not un- what? <laughs> because somehow the CIA doesn't know about the safe houses, doesn't know about the, all the stuff, doesn't know this, doesn't know that. Now, and as oh. regimented as controlling as the CIA is, I really don't think they'd have a team like this. Oh, something that they couldn't control? No. If there's a is team it- like this, it's not answering to the CIA, the NSA, the DEA. What you know. Yeah, it's not no. to the FBI, one of the 37 alphabet soup agencies that we have. 
it's it's something else entirely. Yeah, but this is again goes back to the thing where it's like the CIA would never create this group. No, it's it, information they can't control. Exactly. The yeah. group that they can't control, that's the last thing they want. Right. Which again brings up I will say the beginning scene though was very good because that is something that has been done before. It's funny, we think of CIA agents as all of these Tom Cruise types and James Bond types when it's probably a bunch of actuaries and uh, statisticians out there just crunching numbers and researching and running algorithms. (laughs) They have those. They certainly have those. Well, uh, especially since the CIA and the United States has moved away from um, human intelligence and more into SIGIT, um, signal intelligence and rate, you know, we use a lot more uh, satellites and a lot satellites, more. or even just locals on the ground. Well, no, we we've only America has moved away from even locals on the ground. Oh, okay. We America has moved more into signal intelligence, which is picking up like your phone calls. Oh, that's laptops. yeah. That's, oh, no. yeah. That's a new thing with soldiers. They're not allowed to have their smartphones on when they're on base because the enemies can track the base locations by the cell oh, phone sure. signals. Yeah, and they've well, actually they can, can target attacks to that. Yeah, they can and, and, if everybody knows where the base is. It's even if they don't, they don't have to know where the base is. No. They find the base by the cell phone by signals. The signal. They yeah. see the military guys it. leaving. You know, they're like, oh, here's cell phone signals in an area where there shouldn't be cell phone signals. And like, oh, that's a military base. Well, I don't know, because literally can you can use that to tr- – they did this where you could use the cell phone signals to literally find underground bunkers because someone's walking in a very square circle, you know, square box. Where there's nothing. Yeah, they figured that's a big potential thing in, in future uh, combat engagement and rules of engagement, that they can track locations, the enemy can track locations based on the data traffic coming in and out, and yeah, the signal well, traffic. But that's I, what I'm saying. Uh, CIA's moved more away from human and ground-based like spying. It's moved more into that future and the c- signals and the... Well, yeah, it's like the aircraft carrier thing. We don't want to, the future's not going to have aircraft carriers because they're a big floating target. Same thing with you don't want to have big bases because the information's got to get in and out somewhere and it becomes a big lit up target. Well, and one thing too that's that's in a lot of these movies that just doesn't happen, you see where an agent is compromised and all of a sudden the SWAT team shows up and shoots them out. Um, No, no, that doesn't happen. Uh, rarely does that happen. It does uh, happen, just rarely. Rarely. I mean, whenever whenever you get someone saying, oh, yeah, there was a CIA, they came in with SWAT to get the agent out. No, most of the time the CIA will just do the diplomatic approach and offer a prisoner exchange. Because depending on, especially like if you're in Moscow, no, nah, it's not worth Beijing. No, nope, not worth the international incident. Not worth it. Or we'll the just retaliation. Get nope. Well, also, yeah. normally because the other problem being, and again, these movies don't like to bring this up. How do you get them there? Well, no. Most of the time, things like that, that A, brings attention, but also people like to think, oh, yeah, the CIA over in, let's just choose a country out of random here, uh, out of 
Italy, let's say. It's an ally of ours, but the CIA based it in Italy. Sure, they're there. Yeah, they are. Italy knows most, if not all, of CIA's operation bases. And the they people know. we have over there, probably. Exactly. Yeah, right. They know, you know, that Ash, t- that, yeah, that is totally the agricultural diplomat. He's totally that. His background with the Navy SEALs has nothing to do with it. No. That's a CIA agent. We'll put a tail on him. So, for you just to grab 30 CIA agent, agents, equip them with guns, and go raid something, that's going to be tracked. That's yeah, going to be exactly. seen. That's that going will... to be a heads up way beforehand. They're going to get picked up. I got another, yeah. another pick, Rip. The, the exploding stick of gum. I, I, you know, I'm glad you said that. I thought the same thing. On one hand, it's like, ooh, I don't believe that works, but it's a cool gadget. Yeah, on the other hand is, make sure that you store this in, like, your shirt pocket or in a, in a, in a hard case. Do not put it in your back pocket so that you sit in it next sit to it and fold it together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, not only also- don't chew it, make sure that it is stored inside of a case where it cannot be bent. Yeah, also... I mean, it's cool, but uh, science doesn't quite work that way, and the reactive elements there isn't enough no. to create that big of an explosion. No, but you, you know, that's explosion, the thing about, but not that big. Yeah, it, that's the thing about a lot of these spy, the spy gadgets. You enjoy them just for the wow, how cool factor, not the re- believability factor. So Yeah, that brings me to another rip. The, if the explosion is enough, powerful enough to throw him off the helicopter, and Did we go ex- for crush him and kill him, and accelerate yeah. him fast the enough to catch alone. the train, because now he's moving faster than the train that's going 150, 160 miles an hour when he slams Black. into it. Tom Cruise is Black. now a quivering pile of pink goo. Well, well you know what's funny about that too. That, the problem being the actual explosive force would actually. Turn his insides into jello. Right. It, Plus he's, the fire he's dead. from the explosion. Yeah. Don't forget that. I always remember Mad Magazine did a thing about like what if uh, action movies were more realistic. And it was talking about how the hero jumps from the exploding wreck. Painful skin grafts and surgeries are needed <laughs> for years. <laughs> yeah. Or when he punches out the windows. Always, yeah. always punch out a window, and like you're never yeah, bleeding for hours. There. <laughs> yeah, just well, sort of glass everywhere and things like that. Yeah. So I think that's uh, pretty good with rips and picks because I want to dovetail it into a point I made. I want to go back to pacing here. So yesterday I saw the movie Shang Chi, and it's a it's a good movie. Um, it's is it the best Marvel movie ever? Well, no, but it's good. But there's something I noticed about it. That the early fight scenes, the kung fu scenes, were really, they were good. They were really great. But then the final battle became such an overdrawn-out CGI bar fest that the only reason I remember what happened, at least in part, is because I told myself, focus, focus focus because i found myself lulling out of paying attention it just became a 
Whoa, CGI effects, effects, drawn out, dragged out effects. And it just occurred to me that, and because of the length of the film, there was a lot of padding scenes where we had a lot of him looking at his mom and getting encouragement from his mom before he suddenly gets the power to fight the bad guy. And it made me realize, one, that's bad for pacing, like we mentioned, but two, that final battle scene. So it made me think of the Battle of Endor in that a kid today would watch, what's the point of making the Battle of Endor? Because it's not a barf fest that's just so much happening that your mind can't process it. That having all your neurons firing up is some kind of high for younger people. But then if you ask them to, okay, what happened? They don't know. They can't remember because there was just too much going on. And that goes back to a movie like this, where we can recall the train scene over the top and nuts as it is, because it wasn't too long drawn out. It wasn't too many effects to the point where I just got overstimulated or headachey and had to look away or too much flash panning, whatever. Yeah, and, I think it gets to you can't see the forest and, through the trees type of mentality with a lot of and this. That is something that this film, and granted, it was made in 96, so they weren't doing that yet. But we could focus it up and pay attention to remember, hey, that, that scene with the helicopter, it was kind of cool, but it was also really dumb. Whereas if you told me, okay, tell me what exactly did you not like about specifically about that final battle, I would be going, well, um, you know, um, there was the dragon and a lot of light and stuff. That's all I can give you. I can't, except for the, the point when I realized it was happening and I focused, then I could do it. Otherwise, uh, I was just left with kind of being confused. And I, I think that's a bad thing because it's not movie making. It's not storytelling. It's just, it's the same thing I didn't like about the new Godzilla versus King Kong. It was just stuff going on, flashing and panning and colors and crap and overstimulated neurons to the point where it's like, whoa, whoa, stop and tell me what's going on. It's like if you just, it's like being stuck in, uh, getting drunk and high and going into the middle of a mosh pit with strobe lights flashing in your face. You have no idea what's going on. And that's what's happening in a lot of these movies now. And I think that's a bad thing because not only is it ruining the focus of a younger generation, but it's causing older people just to shut out of movies that honestly are, even if they're just plain good, they're worthy of your attention, but you check out because you're like, ah, it's just going to be enough more of that flash panning nonsense. I'm done. So that's. I, I, the reason why younger generation is zoning out, but well, I mean, their phones help too. But I mean, it, it's a, it's it's probably a symptom for sure. But the fact that that is happening is just exacerbating the problem. 
you know it's like we're making movies for them they're already zoning out and it's hard to keep their focus so let's just do more of that in the movies so they watch and make it really long because we got to pad that three hour runtime. and then you get a guy like me who's going wait what with the what why is this happening what is happening stop and show me what's happening and i just thought because there were a row of teenagers in front of me and i thought let's say i put in return of the jedi which had arguably one of the biggest battle scenes in cinema history at that point at that point when it came out they would be bored at how slow it was or let's scale it back to the old spaghetti westerns you know where you see the cowboys standing in a, a duel. They're just eyeing each other up, just waiting for someone to draw. And they'd be bored out of their mind because stuff isn't happening. They're, you're actually seeing the characters. You're, there's that, the intensity is not the anticipation, it's the flashbang. Yeah, that type of filmmaking is gone because we're not that type of society anymore. I, I could exactly. go further. I, could, I mean, I have, I have nephews who've watched Star Wars. Uh, they all like the new movies better, 7, 8, and 9, and the prequels better, and they believe that 4, 5, and 6 are boring and slow. And, exactly. And that, that's going to be... You said, they, they, what's the point of the battle scene in Return of the Jedi? They'd say, what's the point of Return of the Jedi? There's nothing in that right. movie that's going to, I mean, the, the, the Luke-Vader fight at the end is completely put to shame by everything that happens in the prequels. Uh, but beyond that, not, no, it's not actually, just... Oh, you said prequels. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm prequels. Okay, it's thank not you. Just, on, um, it's not just uh, the, the, the phones in general or flash panning that has made us have a shorter attention span and not willing to wait for things to develop. We have always been an instant gratification society, but we're even more so now. Think about this. I don't know about you guys. My short-term memory is absolutely terrible these days. I have terrible short-term memory because I don't need it. I do need long-term recall, but I do not need medium and short-term recall anymore because all of the information of humanity is at my fingertips whenever I want it. And so since your brain isn't working to constantly encode short-term memories— it's just not doing it. It, it, it doesn't know. It, it, you get a phone number. Your brain knows, I don't need to remember that number. So I don't need to make these connections in my brain and these pathways. I do need to devote space to this long-term memory. So that's what it does. Yeah. Um, well, we mean, are conditioned with everything in the world to look for fast, immediate gratification. And we don't want to watch the sweat drip down the gunslinger's eye as he's, as he's you know, just by his gun waiting for the slightest movement to draw we don't want that anticipation yeah. we don't even want it to be a one-shot thing we want to see we want we want to see the explosion up close with cgi yep. and then that slow-mo has to lead to like it going through the veins and then it has to be a big flash. yeah it has no, to be right and we don't want to see an obi-wan vader uh lightsaber duel we want to see Obi-Wan Anakin is a lightsaber duel. And then the next time something happens, we've got to top that. And yeah. so then you get to stuff that can't. This is the other problem that happens with flash pan technology or with flash, with flash panning and fight scenes. 
We reached the limit a long time ago of what we could realistically show on TV with human beings doing even with stunt actors. So now if we want to make it go bigger and better and make the action seem faster and more furious and like the pun there, we have to go to rapid flash panning so that we can't tell what's really going on. Because if we show what's really going on, it's going to look like something we did 15 years ago. Or look bad if you go back to episode 8, the throne room battle. There's a lot going on fast and flashy, but when you watch it again, you realize, did, did that guard just pull his punch? Like, was he about to strike at Ray and he stopped mid-strike because she wasn't ready yet? Did that just happen? And why is that guy just twirling in the corner? No one's even there. Hollywood became a victim of its own success. And, and ultimately... Back in the 60s and back in the 50s, you couldn't, do, you couldn't show what you wanted to show. So you had to tell. You had to use—we've talked about this before. You had, yeah. to use, you had to use close-ups on the actors and actresses to show tension. You had to use score. You had to use context clues. You couldn't just—you couldn't show these awesome um, special effects and CGI things. So you had to use other storytelling methods— to to convey what was out there and what was going on uh today you don't have to you can take shortcuts so you don't have to develop that part of your creative brain and so we don't and audiences now don't want that they don't want to have to figure it out themselves they don't want to have to make linkages with their brain as they're watching to figure out what's going on they want it on screen and shown to them if they wanted to think they'd read a book now that sounds right. derisive, you know, podcasting 101, maybe that's 201, don't insult the audience, Scott, but I'm like that too. I'm watching a movie to decompress. I don't always want to think. Well, I mean, we all have some of that now. I mean, I still remember my phone number when growing up, like my parents' phone yeah. landline. Me too. Me too. That's still in my mind. I remember Mark's I, dad's I home even... phone number. It's one of the few right. home phone numbers I remember. But can oh, I wow. right now honestly say, without picking up my cell phone and looking at it, that I can remember my wife's cell phone number? 50 50. Oh. Sometimes I can remember my wife's cell phone number. But, I can. But that, again, that, that's even, well, Walker, I'm surprised, but I could maybe. Maybe no, if it. I needed to call my family, if I needed to call my mom, if I need to get a hold of my family and I don't have my cell phone, I don't know how to reach anyone i couldn't call my brother my sister my dad my mother i don't know how to reach them i might be able to get a hold of my wife after six or seven tries wow well uh you know you were just talking about complexity um people don't want to they just want to unwind you're not going to be able to just veg out on next week's film because uh it's a christopher nolan movie so yeah, I can't believe oh, we're watching a Christopher Nolan film. It's, uh, te- it's Tenet, which is actually enjoyable, but of course it didn't do as well because it's a very heady film. So, Who are you and where is Rage Master? I, you know, Scott, I, um, 
I used to dump a lot on him, but then I softened up when I started seeing a few films of his that I liked. I'll go more into it next I'm week. I'm still but. waiting for the for the conversion on J.J. Abrams and Michael Bay, where we review like a month of J.J. <laughs> oh, Abrams not, films. That's that's not happening. Don't worry about I, that. Um, I wanted to see when Mark walks in and goes, "Mystery boxes are the best." Ah, uh, no, that. But if that happens, you know, you could pretty much assume I've been body doubled. There is um, a, there is a, uh, there's a website where you can reach celebrities and, uh, and, and. Oh, get them to say stuff. Yes. Record things. Yes. And the, the, you talk the price, and and it's yeah, they, they send you recorded messages. Oh yeah, uh, I know about Like Farba's on there. I I really need to take up a collection to get the amount of money to have J.J. Abrams sit for an interview with the Rage Master. <laughs> I want this interview. Go for it. If we Act can't do that, well, I might try to figure out if J.J. Abrams is on that site and if I can get him to just say for to do mystery box for like 30 <laughs> seconds Go for, for Mark. Go for it. But until then, let's rate this thing. How many agents would you rate this film? I would give it... Um, Probably about a seven or eight, because despite the misgivings, it was still a well-paced, fun film, and I enjoyed it. It made me say, boy, I wish I actually had gone seen this when it came out. I wish I hadn't dismissed it altogether. Okay. Um, I think I'm giving it a six. It, it's iconic, it's good. It does lose a point for being, uh, having an actor from Scientology. I will be honest. Uh, hey, I'm not gonna knock you for that one. Um, there's, it has problems in my opinion, holding up. I guess if I'm watching it right now, it's still good. I don't know if it's like amazing and great and ooh. Mm. Okay. The next mission, some of the Mission Impossible's after one, I guess I would say get better. But it's okay. I I do enjoy it and I will watch it, and it's not bad. Okay. I give it a I give it a six. It's uh it's it's a better than average film. I don't regret that I watched it. At the same time, I have no desire to watch it again, and I have no desire to watch any of the Mission Impossibles that come after it. And a, a lot of the characters' names are forgettable. Um, like the the female lead, I keep referring to as uh, Phelps's wife, and I can't remember the exact name of the CIA head, and I can barely remember that Tom Cruise is Ethan Hunt. And if the characters aren't resonating with me that I remember their name, remember their stories, or care about them, something's failed. But it's it's a good enough piece of entertainment that I enjoyed it. I wasn't going, dear God, is this over already at any point in time? And um, I don't regret that I watched it. <laughs> Not exactly gl glowing praise. Um, it's, uh, it's not bad. It's, it's yeah. something. It's not bad. Uh, Six. Yeah, I mean, it, eight it depending on how I feel. But yeah, so it seems like we land somewhere in the six and seven, which is, I would say, pretty good pretty good so as i said sickies next week it's gonna be we're gonna be finishing out the month with the nolan film tenet t-e-n-e-t -E -E it's a palindrome blah 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 you'll see why 
and then I will explain why I have occasionally softened on Christopher Nolan. Uh, I still think the Dark Knight trilogy blows, and I'm not a fan of Inception, but other projects of his I felt, I feel, are pretty good, so... But in the meantime, so, so so that means J.J. Abrams has a chance. Uh, no, he doesn't. Uh, <laughs> so, with that in mind, if what would what do you sickies think of Mission Impossible? Be there, be it the first film or the subsequent films, or is there a topic you'd like us to cover? And if you find a way to alliterate it, I'm more likely to do it, more likely to push it on the guys. So you can tell us at www.ragemastersahypocrite or now let's know ravinglunaticmedia.com or ravinglunaticmedia.com or ravinglunaticmedia.com. Ragemaster. Ragemaster always believes he's a hypocrite and he knows it. You're not telling him anything he doesn't already know. Ragemaster, what's left for them to do? Stay sick, sickies. And watch out for Carol Baskin. Hey, hey, I've seen this one. I've seen this one. This is a classic. This is our sci-fi melody. Dresses up as a man from space. What do you mean you've seen this? It's brand new. Yeah, well, I saw it on a rerun. <laughs>